I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 8. I want to, to read you this relatively brief psalm and then seek to show you what is going on here in terms of the experience, who God is in the journey of prayer that David goes through in this particular psalm. So we're going to be in the 8th psalm. I want to mention as well, by the way, that our church, um, one of the main ways in which we experience community in ordinary um, the course of things is through mid- midweek home groups that take place across the city. They'll be taking a break, I anticipate, most of these groups throughout August, um, but if you're not in one, there is time to join and to get involved in one before they break for the summer, and I encourage you to do so. Just email the church, info at grace.london, and we'll make sure that you get uh, your details are passed on, you'll get an invitation it's really important and crucial that um, you, you do uh, experience church life in this way if you're part of the church because we really do not simply want to be attenders, but we want to be a family here in the center of London. Now, let's read this psalm, Psalm 8. It says this, To the choir master, according to the Girtith, the psalm of David. O Lord, he uses there the divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is beautiful and capturing for us something of the the journey and the experience that David goes through as he enters into prayer before the living God and the way he conceives of who God is and the way he responds to God in that moment. And this is vital for us. If you ask the question, what is the purpose of the Christian life? What does God want of you and from you and for you. From the moment that you first cross the line of faith when you profess, I want to follow Jesus and I want to repent of my sin and be a disciple of Christ to your dying days, what is it that God wants to accomplish in you? The answer, of course, in the scripture is given in all kinds of ways, but essentially it's that you'll grow deeper in the knowledge of who God is. And all that that accompanies that, including the ability to turn away from your sin the ability to grow in maturity and stature and understanding of your faith, the enlarging of your heart to love, everything that accompanies it. But fundamentally it is this, that you come into a deeper knowledge of who God is. And how does that happen? It happens in all kinds of ways, but it never happens without the life of the Christian deepening in prayer. In other words, it never happens without that experience of being face-to-face with God in prayer being stretched and enlivened and deepened and energized in your life. A prayerless Christian is a Christian who is either remaining still or 
more likely moving backwards, whatever you see on the surface. It's only in encountering with God that we are able to grow in the Christian life from infancy into maturity because ultimately it's a journey towards him. That's what maturity is. And so it makes no sense, would it, to have a prayerless life. Now I recognize how challenging that is. I've never met a Christian who doesn't, doesn't feel some sense of inadequacy in terms of the way that we relate to God and pray, whether it's about our sense of discipline or what happens in that time of prayer and when we're with God. There's often, we can look at our own deficiencies, can't we, all the time. And I suspect that in some ways that may be especially true for many of you this year. Just speaking very generally, we, we know one of the words that's being used and bandied around to describe the condition of people's minds and the kind of mental state is that people have been languishing. And that's what happens when our lives are disrupted and put on pause and we are out of relationship with each other. But I think it's the right, right word to think about how some people are experiencing their walk with God. That Many are languishing because of the diminishment and the smothering effects of what it's been What's happened in terms of our church life and community life and in terms of our ability to worship God freely as God's people. And it may be the case that in some ways you've forgotten what it is to meet with God. To pray, to worship Him. To encounter Him. Whether in the secret place, which is the privilege of the Christian to encounter God whenever you are on your knees before Him. Or when you are among God's people as we are right now. And I want to stir you up by way of reminder. The way that we can, one way that we can learn and grow and be provoked in this is by coming alongside a man like David. God in his providence made it possible for David's prayers, many of them, to be recorded and preserved over thousands of years for our benefit. So that when we come alongside him, it's as though you catch him at his bedside on his knees before God in prayer or wherever it was he prayed. And you come alongside him and you kneel down beside him and you start to pray with him. The vision of God that is his becomes the vision of God that you begin to perceive as you pray the Psalms with him. I knew a man, an older Christian, who made it his practice to help younger men grow in their faith by inviting them into this experience. Come and pray with me. For an hour a week. And as young men knelt alongside him and prayed, they began to catch something of the man's heart and his passion for the Lord and his zeal for God's kingdom and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his longing for the kingdom to be extended in the earth. Changed the lives of those younger men. Now this is what happens when we enter into the mind and the spiritual life of a man like David when you come alongside him in a prayer like this. My hope as we unpack it, is that we'll begin to glimpse something of what it is that he sees. Because to see God is to be changed by him. It's what the scriptures tell us, that we are changed to the degree that we perceive who God is. When your eyes are closed and your ears are dulled, you cannot change. When your eyes are open, the New Testament uses the language of the eyes of the heart being opened or enlightened. When your ears are quickened and you begin to hear then your life begins to transform and change. It's in the presence of God, in other words, it's face to face with God that we are changed. The book of 1 John, the letter 1 John, says that that will come to its perfection and completion when you see Jesus face to face. This is what we're kind of striving and groping towards in our imperfect 
way in the here and now. We want to see you, Jesus. We want to perceive something of your greatness and your glory even now. So come alongside David. Let's understand what is it that fills his heart and his mind as he gets on his knees before God in prayer. What is it that he is captivated by? And I want to show you a few facets and the journey in particular of what he goes through as he's praying before his Father in heaven. The first thing that he sees, or the first response, is that he is filled with a sense of humility and awe before the awesomeness of God. As he comes into the presence of God and he says, Oh Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Could there be a more appropriate way to enter into God's presence than this? Now I want to highlight this because I think that if you were to ask me what is the greatest deficiency among Christians, in the Western context particularly, and in the present day, and I point to myself as much to any, as to any of us, it is this, that I think we are deficient in our sense of the holiness and otherness and transcendence and mightiness of God so that our fear of God is smaller than it ought to be. You think about the failings of our grandparents and great-grandparents in terms of the way faith was practiced here at least decades ago. Perhaps their faith was marked by an overly religious formula that churches were very formal and stiff and predictable and you go in and you feel very there would be a hush and a silence and it, the, people rightly kind of wanted to shake that off and we've moved towards something very different which is much more of a relaxed um, approach and uh, you know it's, it, we, we maybe lack a sense of occasion when we're coming into the presence of God and to my mind both of these responses are entirely wrong and both of them are corrected by the same thing, which is a sense of the reality and the presence of the living God whenever we're in, in his presence. You can't be stuffy and religious and formal when you say God is here. Neither can you be casual though and think and speak as though God is merely your chum. There is a sense of occasion. We show up early and eagerly. There's something in our manner and posture and sense of expectation that we're here before God. We sing heartily and passionately. And we want to lean forward. God, speak to me today. And I think it's in that manner, in that mode, that David enters the presence of God here when he comes before him and says, kneeling as it were, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's overawed with the reality of who God is. Now this is very important. For David, conscious as he was that many of the surrounding nations worshipped idols and that the Israelites, his own people, were often tempted to worship idols, he knew that an idol could do nothing for you, ultimately. There's a psalm, Psalm 115, which captures it well. It says this. It says, their idols, he's speaking about the idols of the nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. There's mockery really going on here. He says, they have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, they're dead things. And then the line that comes after that is this. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
What do you become like if you worship the things of this world, if you worship created things? You lose the capacity to see, to hear, to feel, to touch, to move. In other words, all of your humanity is diminished down to the level of the gods that you worship. You worship money, your humanity is diminished down to greed. You worship sex, your humanity is diminished down to avarice and passion and, and, and sexual um, incontinence. You worship, you worship your family and your children, your, your humanity becomes limited, believe it or not. Whatever it is that we worship, we're limited by that thing. But to experience the expansiveness of a heart that's enlarged and filled and overawed, you have to worship the living God. To no real awe. You have to be before the holy God who is alive, who made all things. You've set your glory above the heavens, David says. And such a sense of certainty does David experience in this moment when he's before God on his knees, before the living God, as opposed to the dead idols of the surrounding nations that he begins, immediately moves into a kind of boasting posture. And boasting in the ancient world was something you did on the lines of battle in order to taunt the enemy. David had done this as a younger man. When he'd stood on the battlefield and Goliath was there taunting them, David had responded, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? His sense of the reality of who God is enlarged him. So that this little 16 or 17 year old boy, most likely, becomes a man, becomes bigger in the presence even of that giant because of the God that he worships. And something like that is going on here when David enters God's presence. The smallness of our lives, the narrowness, the blinkered way in which we live, so distracted, so full of worry, so full of daily concern, all of that is smashed and melts away when you really begin to conceive of who God is and you're in his presence. And you see this boasting pouring out when he says in the next line, out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes are still the enemy and the avenger. He's saying this, God, you don't need me. You don't need any of us. You don't need the praises of strong and mighty men like me, a king. You're content with the praises of children to defeat your enemies. You see what's happening to David is this. The fear of God is shrinking all worldly concern, putting everything in its perspective, causing him to bow down with a heaviness of the glory of God that's upon him in this moment. Does this characterize your prayer life, brother and sister? When you pray, if you pray, are you aware of the holiness of God? Do you come before him with that consciousness, that God consciousness, that weight of who he is? Isn't it so often the case, rather, that we come thinking about all our little worries and petty concerns? I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring those to God, but how they consume and fill our eyes. It's like we're looking down at the dust instead of looking up at the God that we worship. You want to know what it is to live a liberated and free life? You have to be transfixed by the holiness of God. It's the key to so much in the Christian life. The first thing then is this, that he's put in this posture of awe and humility. Oh God. Now, there's something then that begins to take place in David's heart. 
on his knees before God. That his journey in prayer, having begun in this place of awe, paradoxically and somewhat confusingly at first, there's this transition when he begins to sense something of the love of God and the fact that he is there before God as God's treasured possession. Now, this makes no sense at first. And I think this is why he phrases it as a question to begin with. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And this ought to confuse you. In a sense, David is wrestling with a sense of confusion in his own spirit in this moment. Because aware as he is that God is great and mighty and to be feared, you would assume that that would leave us feeling small and unworthy and disgusting and distant and unable to approach God. But something else is going on here for David. And this is the puzzle, this is the paradox. Here he is, you can picture him. No doubt, I said earlier he was in his bedroom, probably he was actually on the flat roof of his palace perhaps. And he's on the flat roof as they often prayed in those days. And maybe it's at night time as he's praying and he looks up and he sees the stars and without all the light pollution that we have in London, he sees a lot more of them than you and I see. And he's overawed with the magnificence of what he sees. feels small and it makes sense you know that the sun our nearest star can contain 1.3 million planet earths it's that large and the next star the nearest one to, to us from the sun is four light years away which is to say it would take you four years if you were traveling at 186,000 miles per second to get to the next star and these two stars are two of about 100 billion that belong in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way. And our Milky Way is one of somewhere between 100 billion and 2 trillion, no one knows. It's a wide margin of error. (laughs) Other galaxies in the universe. Now, I don't know that David knew all of that. Perhaps God enabled him to glimpse something of it. But what he saw was the greatness of God over it all. And he's puzzled. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And then he says, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. These two realities exist side by side in his mind and heart and understanding that God is great over us, but he also loves us. David knows this and he feels it. And it's not just because he's King David. You might think, okay, that's fair. He's God's favored son who got to lead God's favored people. No doubt, no wonder David feels the love of God and the special focus and attention of God when he's on his knees in prayer. But that's not what David says. He doesn't say, what am I that you're mindful of me, yet you've crowned me as king of Israel. He talks in the generic sense. What is man? And he talks there of mankind, that you're mindful of him. And the son of man, the son of a man, that you you care. And he says, you you crowned him. And he begins to use the language here 
of the way in which God has crowned all humanity. The specialness of every single one of you before the living God. This is not talking about David specifically in any unique way. It's talking about all of us before the holy God when we come to him. That he's mindful, attentive. It's similar to what Jesus said, isn't it? That he knows the number of hairs on your head. Now you think how utterly life-changing this is. This combination of truths. That you can come into the presence of a holy God and be overawed with his reality and enlarged by it. But at the same time, know the love of God. And it seems to me that that love is the absolute center and life-changing power that energizes and fuels the Christian life. And it's so important. If you've never known this love, friend, this is what you need above all. It may be the case that you need a fresh revelation of this love. I say that because I think that so many of us are afflicted with a lack of a sense of self-worth. A sense of ugliness or unloveliness or insecurity. Many have been experienced rejection because of broken house, home and parents who split up or, you know, absent father or because of a love, someone who you loved who abandoned you and walked away or because you've never found someone who will love you in that way or because you don't have any deep friendships or maybe you felt especially isolated this year and this, this year has exposed the paucity and thinness of your relationships and you felt particularly alone. Maybe you just feel wretched on account of your sin and all the secrets that you know about yourself that others don't know. And you think, how could I be loved? You think, how does a human, complex as we are, such mysterious creatures, so afflicted by self-doubt and insecurity and all these things, how do we, how do you and I experience change and transformation? The answer is you have to know the love of God. This is true, if this is true for you personally, friend, I know it's also true for our society at large. Aren't we living in a day and an age that, that feels like an orphan culture where we're desperately flailing around for a sense of identity, whether it's in tribal causes and, and politics or it's in sexual identity or it's in a desperate bid for popularity online. You think, what is all this except the exposure of our deep insecurities and inadequacies and the great gaping void in our heart to know the love of the God who made us? Seems to me this is the scream that's rising from our culture right now. What David is encountering here when he's on his knees in prayer and what I believe you and I need to encounter in our own walk with God personally and when we gather and when we worship is this love that satisfies us both intellectually and emotionally. I say that because I think there's an intellectual aspect to this. If you believe that your life is merely the product of chance collisions of atoms over eons of time, then friend, you have no worth. That is the cold, hard reality. Anything else is make-believe. But what David is saying here is this. He says, you have made him, mankind, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's our being created by God that invests us with value. And then he says, you've crowned him with glory and honor. I 
I know there's a lot of humanity hating going on at the moment because of the way that we are damaging the environment. Of course, it's a great tragedy, the things that humans do. But never forget that there is something special and unique above the the animals and under the stars. We are unique in all God's creation. And what David says here is you crowned him with glory. The word he uses is the Hebrew word kavoth, which is the same Hebrew word that's used of the emanating, visible, manifest glory of the living God as it descended on the tabernacle and the temple at the heart of Israelite worship. And he's saying every one of you carries the glory of the living God. You think you're nothing. You think you're disgusting. You think you're unlovely. You think no one could love you. David says, on my knees before God, I suddenly realize I carry glory. You carry glory. Isn't this the answer to so much of our fighting and conflict and all the kind of angst going on in our culture? To know that every one of us is invested with this kind of dignity. And this is true intellectually, but I also said to you it's true emotionally. If you try and fill your life with the created things, your job, success, money, a relationship, romantic relationship, children, increasingly obviously these days pets, you know, whatever it is you try and fill your life with, Friend, you're going to be dissatisfied in the end. Your heart was designed to contain something of the glory of the living God and his affections for you. Nothing else can fill that heart. And this is what David experiences in prayer. Do you want to know the love of God? Come to your Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit. Ask him to reveal his love to you. You want to know freedom. You want to know liberty in life. This is what you need, friend. What goes on here is that it's led to a kind of third aspect of the journey that he goes through in this prayer, this psalm. That he then begins to feel a sense of the purpose and dignity we go on our knees before God in prayer and then we, we stand up commissioned. And very often it seems to me that we get this the wrong way around. That we, we come to God with all of our ideas about the things that we want to do and accomplish with our day and with our time and with our life. And we want to recruit God to our cause. And it's almost exactly backwards. And what David sees here is that it's all about God's cause and the fact that he's rested his authority and purposes upon us as his people. This is what he says in the second half of the psalm. He says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And he speaks about the created order. And what David is talking about here is he's, he's, he's describing here. Listen, when, when we come to God and we have all this, these little ambitions and concerns and we say God help me with the things I want to do with my life and then we, we, we emerge from prayer dissatisfied there's no wonder is there 
But what David is rather doing is that he's kneeling with the greatest concerns of you know, one of the most powerful men on the planet at the time. And yet he's not interested in just recruiting God to his cause. He's interested in what it is that God has commissioned over us as people. And he's speaking here in the very general sense about God's purposes for all people. That our, his calling as a king and your calling and my calling, whenever you come on your knees before God, is to know what is it that God has called me to do within his plans and purposes. The sense of purpose. The reason why I say that is because the language he uses here, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, actually has nothing to do specifically with David's role as king and everything to do with what God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1. He's almost echoing the phrasing and language of Genesis 1, a call that was given to all humanity. And David is saying, this isn't about me and my concerns, as, as weighty as they were, and I've no doubt that he prayed about his concerns. But he's speaking here in the very general and broad sense about the purpose that God has put on every single one of you. You are made for purpose, literally. You are made to accomplish the will of God. God has given you abilities and glory and dignity and power and authority to do what he has called you to do. And anyone on their knees before God in prayer must enter into something of the realization of that. It begins with a sense of submission to the holiness of God. But as you're submitting and repenting and surrendering your life to him, God wants to use you and commission you and send you out. I want you to imagine with me for a second what a Christian life would look like if our prayer was characterized by these things. What does it look like if you have a, a real and profound sense of the holiness of God as David did? You come before him, you see, feel his, the awful sense of his presence. And the answer is, you'll be repenting of sin quickly and passionately and zealous and earnest for the glory of God. And your heart will be filled with worship for him above all created things. What happens then also if you experience something of the love of God, like sunshine on your heart? So the great holy God who's over us is also the one who loves me. What happens when your heart is enlarged to this love? The answer is you can go through life with a kind of serenity and peace and confidence and assurance, stability. To know the love of God is the very love that frees you from all fear, basically. And what happens if a person then also has a sense of purpose? I've been called to accomplish things with my life and God alone can determine what it is that he wants me to do. Well, then you cannot help but go about your life every day with that intentionality and devotion and obedience and determination to glorify God in whatever he's called you to do. This dominion, by the way, isn't narrowed down to just things that Christians like to do. It's about God's rule and order and reign pervading all of his creation through his agents, you and me, which means you carry his presence into your family, into your workplace, into your social life, into every single thing that you are and do. That's the dominion. It's the expansive rule of God through his people across the whole world. Imagine a people who grasp these things. Now, friend... Can we ever pray like this? And to me, the answer is a kind of yes and no. 
I think that we can in the sense that God enables us to experience more of what it means to know him as you mature in the Christian life. Maybe God will grant you unique, extraordinary experiences in your walk. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the answer is no, because we will always, in this life, have hindrances and a veil and an incapacity to fully experience and know the love of God in the way that is described here. And this is why I think this psalm, as much as it is, is it about all of us and the experience that all of us ought to have before God and relating to him, it is most perfectly about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how the New Testament takes this psalm. Especially in that second half where it says, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower. And the heavenly beings are crowned him with glory and honor. That section is quoted in the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. To speak not just generically about all of us, though it's true in that sense, but very specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been given the seat of rule and authority above all things. Now, why do I say that? Because knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only man who ever lived, who related to God perfectly in the way this psalm describes, is liberating and freeing. It means you can... I can take the burden of you, off of you of just trying harder to be better at relating to God and knowing him and release you into the joy that Christ allows. Because we can, on the one hand, turn away from our failings of yesterday. God, I know you're great, but I failed to walk with you up to this point. And thankfully, only one man ever did. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives you his forgiveness. Every day he gives you a fresh opportunity to come to know him. And then you can press forward into the life that he makes for you. He's the pioneer of our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith. All these expressions that are used in the Bible, which is to say, he goes in front, and we, by his grace, want to fall in behind him to hopefully see something of what he sees, to love in the way that he loves, to live in the way that he lives. That's the invitation of the Christian life. We'll never fully live up to this. Oh God, let your spirit fall in us that we'll experience more of it. Only the Lord Jesus Christ will in completion and in perfection. He rounds out the psalm by echoing what he said at the very start. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to encourage you to bow your head, to pray with me now. The Spirit of God moves among his people to accomplish what we cannot conjure up or manufacture. It is possible to artificially work up something like a religious experience. We saw this in the the finals last week on TV. Something akin to a religious experience, even about something that's relatively meaningless. It's possible to whip that up. But to experience God, even when you're on your own, in the secret place, without any artificial manipulation, stimulation, seems to me that that has to be the work of God alone. And this is my prayer. This is our request. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we'll see you. 
that's your prayer, I want you to, in your heart, pray along with me as I give voice to that desire. Father, we are so conscious. And we read a prayer like this and understand the heart and intent that went behind it. The honest confession is that we're not sure we've ever really prayed. Lord, we know that you're patient with us, such distracted creatures. Father, I want to ask that something of the holiness of God will be felt here right now. As well as the love of the Father. So that somewhere between the fear of God and the experience of your affection, our lives will be changed and will be commissioned and given purpose. I pray for those, Lord, who've been going about their daily lives, presuming on your grace, lacking any sense of the weight and the reality of your presence. Lord, bring freedom by enabling them to see something of the fear of God. But Lord, those who are crushed and burdened with that great and heavy sense of inadequacy, Lord, let them feel the light of your love. We ask this, Lord, because we want to be those on earth who not only bear your glory in a created sense, but reflect your glory as those who are the redeemed who know you and walk with you. Forgive us, Lord, how half-hearted we are. And energize us, Lord, into a deeper experience of the knowledge of you. I ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.